Off the Brawl on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station. He's right in front of me and I can honestly tell him that I'm going to knock him spark out. Leaping right hand by the Prince. Ooh. And a hard left. And Kelly's down for the third time. Whoa! He's for real. Unbelievable. For real. One more touch. And Cardinal has gone. Bernard Dunn is the champion of the world. Bernard Dunn is the champion of the world. And you're welcome along to Off The Brawl, your boxing show here on Off The Ball. We're coming to you this week from all manner of locations, so things might sound a little bit different. Bear with us. The more things change, though, the more they stay the same. We've got the A-team in situ. Phil Egan, you're there? I am, yeah. I'm in the the home of the, the world champion, Katie Taylor. Oh, yeah. How's life? Not her, not, not her home, but in the hometown. <laughs> I didn't want to, I could have just yeah, brushed yeah. right past that, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it was, I saw actually she posted some training tips for anyone that wants to, to watch them. Attempt a few of them because uh, we're going to be stuck indoors for a while to get a bit of exercise. But yeah, it's all, all good here. Grand stretch in the evenings now. That's it. And we also have Andy Lee. Andy, how are things? Good. Good. All good. At home here in the Liberties in Dublin. Yeah. I was just thinking you could you could end up being trainer of the year for 2020 because there might not be any more fights this year. <laughs> Two fights, two wins. <laughs> and um, how's all in your world anyway? I know it's a bit it's a shock to the system for everybody, but we haven't caught up with you in a while. So how do you keep it? Uh, I'm good, but everything's just I, I like like everything else. Everything's at a standstill. Um, we were due to fight on March 17th, and Paddy was. Uh, on Madison Square Garden on the Connell undercard as you know that fight that all got cancelled but Paddy was out there because he was flying up early to get get uh, used to the time zone I was supposed to fly out on the Saturday and I think on the Friday it was cancelled so uh, yeah that, that that was disappointing obviously for everybody involved and um, and since then we haven't trained I trained Jason during that week um, but since then, we've just been like everybody else, just staying at home, following the rules, and hopefully, you know, helping tackle this virus. And would you still be touching base with them from a boxing standpoint, or is that the furthest thing from their minds at the moment? No, with like Paddy's still training, Jason's still training. Um, so we just, just keep in touch and. It's not a priority right now, is it? It's not, you know, they can do exa- do whatever, as much as they want, and as less as they want, and we'll just assess it when, whenever we get back to normal. But it's, you know, it's hard to see, like, obviously there are huge things, more, more important things than boxing, but when this thing, when the virus is over, what way will the landscape be then? What fights will, that were scheduled will go ahead? Will it be rescheduled or what fights? You know, will it just be scratched and start from fresh? Who knows? Because everything could be different by then. Yeah, and it's a strange one. I was talking to Michael Conlon about this last week where for boxers, this sort of nomadic existence is routine enough where in your, if you're in training camp, you have to kind of have to be on lockdown anyway, eating the right things and, and just training away, going through a basic day of life. So in one sense, for boxers, it's kind of the norm. But on the, on the flip side, I imagine it must be so hard to be disciplined when you have no firm date in mind, not not least for a fight, but even just to return to, to training camp or anything like that. No, I think you see Michael's bacon if you follow him on Instagram. <laughs> He's cooking cakes and everything. Yeah. yeah, it's and it's it's hard it's hard to remain to have that focus and even have any intensity in terms of training. So that's why we're not together. That's why I'm not bothered what they do, even though I do keep in touch. You know, just as long as they keep it in shape a little bit, that's enough. Because this thing could go on for a long time, and who knows when it's going to be over. Yeah, for sure. And is your daughter enjoying the quality time? Yeah, it's tough. She's she'll be three in June, so she doesn't understand. Like, and it's hard. You're not going to explain it to her. <laughs> so 
we've just been telling her, you know, the school is closed, her crash is closed because um, everyone's got a cold and we have to stay indoors. But it's, it's, it's tough for kids, isn't it? Like, she's delighted to be off, to be home, even though she misses school and to be with me and her mum. But it's, it is tough, I'm sure. A lot of parents, it's tough. You've got to keep them entertained and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of work. But it's it's fun. It's good, 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 yeah. It's a good, good time, nice time to be, to be, for us to be together, you know. Yeah. Spend this time together. And a lot of parents, I'm sure, you know, wouldn't get this time with their kids, so it is nice too. And we were talking about training regimens there, Phil. I saw you posted a picture of the Egan uh, Fitness Centre the other day. So how are you getting yeah. on? Uh, it's grand. Yeah, I've uh, got the skipping rope, a few weights, and my perfect push-up, which is probably the only thing I've ever bought on an infomercial that's actually worthwhile. Yeah, that's I am the like, twist. The twist. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Really good. Very yeah, good, because... Yeah. So just do sets of... Uh, just do 10, 10 second break, do nine, 10 second break, eight, all the way down to one. That's that's a good one. Like it's a fairly standard one, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how long I can keep doing that. And then I, I see, um, I think Little were selling on special offer, those bars that go across the door frame. So that could be the next purchase I have to get to. Uh, maybe every time I go in and out of the sitting room, I have to do a, a chin up. You know? Abroad is good. Abroad is a good piece of care. Do you ever yeah. use Abrola? Oh, yeah. Um, no, the, no, the wheel. The wheel where you go up and down. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Tough. But good. Have you tried the Jolene Challenge, Phil? I haven't, actually. No. So, just... I've, I've That's it. That's your next With the perfect push-up, do your Jolene. Okay. So, it's basically just keep doing push-ups, and then when Jolene is done... No. Stay, stay in a presser position, yeah. yeah. And then whenever she says Jolene in the song, you press up. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It's grand. Where, does, where did, did you come up with that one yourself, Andy, or does that one go back a few years? No, it actually comes from a, from a play. <laughs> it was a play, uh, Chekhov's first play. It was a little section where it turns into a party and they have this little game. And uh, that's where I got it from. Well, that's good. It's clever. I saw a lot of people trying it out. So, uh, yeah, James, James, James McLean did it. It's going to catch on. Yeah, yeah. James McLean. Oh, and... Um, the Fury fight, Andy, we haven't been speaking to you since that happened. I know you were you were flying around after that happened, but I presume you've had a chance to watch it back a couple of dozen times at this stage, have you? I've watched it a couple of times. I think I've I don't know, I think I watched the fight once in full. Um, um my celebrations were certainly excessive, like <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was a good time. It was good. Perfect fight, perfect like uh very rare that something like that works. You know, you have a plan and you work for a plan and you commit to it, but for it to come out and be uh, so ex- like executed perfectly by Tyson um, was, was dream come true, like really, as from a coaching point of view. I was very, uh, yeah, it was very, uh, how can I say, I felt validated. Uh, there wasn't a lot of pressure going into it because of obviously recommending Sugar Hill and then being involved as a coach myself. Tyson done so well in the first fight with Wilder and done so well since that it was really, you know, it was a big risk to change coaches and, and especially with Sugar Hill, who's, although he's a world championship trainer, is not on the world stage, wasn't really on the world stage too much or in people's, I uh, guess in people's imaginations before then, but uh, I knew he could do the job. I knew how good he was as a coach and he certainly proved me right. So. Yeah, it was good. It was very uh, gratifying for myself. What was it like in the corner? Just obviously with all that in mind, it was nerve-wracking, which probably explained <laughs> celebrations after. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, often, like people are, oh, what's, you know, people calling you from home and messaging, it must be unreal and it's great that you're there. And like, really, we could have been anywhere because we were just literally working so hard every day, drilling what, what you saw in the fight, drilling those moves. And we, and, I think like we were living in we were living in Henderson, Nevada. We weren't staying in Las Vegas. We weren't like we we're going to the gym and back to the gym and back to the gym and back every single day. And even the fight week it was just all work and focusing on the job at hand. And in the corner was the exact same. And that's why I had that like that release that came out at uh, at the win when 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 he had won the fight. So 
but it was it was it was good. It was the same same things we do all the time. Same things we've been doing with the lads with Jason and Paddy, staying focused and rehearsing and drilling, drilling what we do. And I think the tentative plan was that the third fight would be in July if there was to be a third fight, but obviously that's uh, kicked down the road a little bit now. He's probably looking towards the end of the year, or have there been any talks at all about his future plans, Andy? I've heard some talk about October, but like nobody knows what's where this thing's going to go, do they? The one thing I said to Tyson is that you did well to get the fight in before this thing kicked off, <laughs> because uh, no matter what happens now, he can sit pretty on that win, and Wilder has to sit with the loss for a long time. So whenever it happens, he'll, you know, he'll be stewing from it. But I think Wilder needs a rest. Uh, like I think the rest may suit him as well because it obviously took a lot of damage in the first fight, physically and emotionally. So um, we'll see. We, you never know which way it could go. By the time this plan to re the schedule like re reconvenes, it could be they could just say let's get Fury and Josh on, you know. So who knows? We'll see. See which way it goes. And even fights that have already fallen by the wayside, like. Kelly Avanesian, I know you have ties to the boot mm -hmm. camp and everyone was looking forward to that fight and it's a fight that fell through before and it's fallen through again and it's one of those fights that could be cursed that might just never happen and like me and Phil were talking the other day about Lamachenko against Teofimo Lopez and that was one everyone was looking forward to but as Lamachenko's getting on a little bit and if uh, that fight might fall through and never happen either so it could be a sliding doors moment in boxing you just never know Yeah it could be and we could be talking about you know fights that were like that was supposed to be the end of May and yeah. Lomachenko and and Lopez and Paddy was supposed to fight on the undercard of that. Um, that was the plan. So all of these things that could you know could have happened or should have happened, but things happen for obviously things happen. For, so I believe things happen for a reason, and they, they work in your favour or they don't. But like Paddy, will just from, from Paddy's point of view, he just have to stay patient. He's still young, got plenty of time, and whenever it comes back, be ready. To, like. It'll be in, if it takes a year for this to say for boxing to get back, then it will have will have affected his career in a way because by the end of this year, we were hoping for Paddy to be around ten and zero, around that you know ten or nine or eleven even uh, fights in total. Um, so it will set him back that he'll have not a bit of catching up to, even though he's still young. Um, it might move things forward a little bit quicker than than previously, you know, had this virus not happened. Mm. And Jason as well, particularly unlucky because he had uh, he lost a year already through injury, and this could be another full year. And there was plans of that show in May, I believe, on the Katie Taylor Serrano show that he was mm. going to fight Jack Collins. So that would have been a nice marketable fight on this side of the water. So it's it's a shame for him as well. But hopefully, uh, it doesn't turn out to be quite as drastic as as people are projecting. Well, we'll uh, with no new fights on the horizon, we're going to gaze back in time at matchups of yore. And a few weeks ago, myself and Phil did uh, Ray Robinson against Jake Lamada. And this week, we turn our attention to perhaps my favourite fight ever. It's uh, Prince Nassim Hamed against Kevin Kelly. So we get ready to see Prince Nassim come into the ring. Larry Merchant, uh, among the many questions, how do we know if he's for real? How do we specifically know if he can take a punch from a legitimate hard puncher in this division like Kevin Kelly? We don't know, Jim, and that's why we're here. Is Hamed a prince or a frog? First two minutes of the fight, Hamed is a puzzle that Kelly is unable to solve. when he caught a punch from Kelly. We saw it. His gloves touch the canvas. The count begins. The second knockdown for Kelly. Hard right hand inside by Kelly. There's the power. And Kelly is stunned. Now we're in a fight. And Kelly decides to go to war. If you don't use your jab, and if you don't move your head, we're going to run into difficulties, and I don't want that. Down goes Kelly on two hard left hands. Both fighters down twice in the fight. Blistering right hand by Hamed. You got to be careful mixing up with Kelly because he can fight. And that's going to be ruled a knockdown. As now 
Nassim's glove raised the canvas. In the hard left, and Kelly's down for the third time. He's for real. Is over. He's for real. The Unbelievable is for real. punching power, George. Unquestionably the most memorable fight of 1997. We have never seen a fight like this in the featherweight division on this level. So, as I think we can take in turns to pick these fights going forward, but this was uh, always going to be my pick. I think we have it in the podcast intro and everything. So, I think, as we'll discuss, Kevin Kelly played his part in the whole thing, but it was very much the Prince Nassim show in terms of his big splash in America. So, what were your original thoughts, having, having watched the whole thing back? I'm thinking back to when I watched Nassim and he was one of those fighters that, you know, split people because you either loved him or you hated him. And, but that wasn't necessarily a bad thing because people were still tuning in, whether they were tuning in to see him win or to see him lose. So what's quite notable, the, watching the fight back, watch it on HBO, which unfortunately we don't have HBO anymore. And when you actually watch the fight back, you just remember how good fights, big fights were on HBO. But you can almost sense it with the American broadcasters as Prince Nassim is, le- he's left Kevin Kelly in the ring for four or five minutes while he's doing his entrance and Kevin Kelly's getting really wound up. But you can almost sense it, or you know, with the, the American commentary, they want to see Nassim, Prince Nassim fail here because he's coming over. This is his big debut. Here he is with his... Uh, ridiculous entrance at one stage um you know larry merchant says is it a fashion show or a prize fight and eventually he comes in and it's four rounds but the the amount of action they got into that four rounds and the same one and you know he, he gave his interview after but i can't help but think when i look back that after that, then, obviously, the split with Brendan Engel. And, you know, if you sum up or if you're asked what was Prince Nassim like, he definitely didn't fulfill his potential. Now, I think at the time, I was probably on the side of I'd like to see him maybe get beaten because he's a little bit too cocky. Obviously, that's something that endeared him to you, Ron. Yeah. Well, it's that Muhammad Ali thing, especially in the earlier part of his career, where he didn't mind why you were watching him as long as you were watching him. and. Hamed had that thing where he wanted people to tune in and my memory of him is a bit sort of retroactive where I just remember my dad having people over to watch the fights and I thought he was just another like The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin character I didn't realize this was actually real and it's actually going back and watching the fights in more recent years I realized like what an impact he actually made Andy would you have been a fan of his uh, on your way up? I grew up like grew up watching him you know um why Why was this your Why did you choose this fight? Why is this one of your favorite fights, Norman? Well, just because um, the drama around it, which we'll get into, there was a lot of uh, preamble in terms of Lou DiBella making the big pitch to get him over. And sometimes these fights fall a little bit flat from the proactive point of view, where, like, even with Joshua Ruiz, that was supposed to be his big coming out party against Miller. And ultimately, it turned out to be quite the opposite. Uh, the balloon was burst. Whereas I thought this was like a brilliant sales pitch for Hamed in America. And you can see how enthused George Foreman was by the whole thing on commentary, Larry Merchant and Jim Lampley. So I just thought it was very captivating. And it was probably like when it's all said and done, the highlight of what was quite a highlight real career. Short is like his career burned brightly, but it was quite short ultimately. Yeah, they had personally they probably wanted him to lose, you know, Larry Merchant <laughs> being the old school guy, but I think they had a job to sell him to the American public as well because he had signed the contract with HBO, you know. So I think they were trying to give him a bit of a push as well in terms of he's the real deal. And, you know, there was some stuff. George Fong was saying, you know, this is the prince of power and things like that. But I think personally they wanted him to lose because they didn't like the cockiness. Um, <laughs> like when I when I think back to the like before I watched it for this, you think about the fight, you just think, oh, yeah, it was exciting. Like when you try to summarize the fight, it was an exciting fight. Both were up and down, but Naz boxed and won and knocked him out, and it was a great win for Naz. But actually, watching the fight again now, through you know, I haven't watched it in years. I thought Naz looked really bad. I thought the signs were there that was going to eventually happen to him when he stepped in with quality again. And I thought Kevin Kelly was probably the better fighter, just too old and too sharp one. And um, 
Yeah, I didn't think Maz looked that good. Like, and it's funny because when I remember the fight, it was a spectacular fight, a lot of action, and Maz had a great win. But actually, watching it, I thought he landed some shots on on orthodox, like awkward punches, offbeat, with a different rhythm, and he knocked down and knocked out an older fighter, who was probably the better fighter, more skilled. Um, that's that's just what I, what I saw this time watching it, you know. And I think you could see that, you know, with him pulling out with his head high, it seemed to have, like, even when you look at the Barrera fight, a very weak neck. Like, anytime he got hit, his head would actually, like, fly back to where he'd almost be whiplashed. But pulling back in straight lines with his head high, and that's, you can't really do that. Not, not, not at world class. Yeah. And that stuff would always be pigeonholed as the Ingle style, quote unquote, like, Brendan Ingle, obviously a very impactful coach from this part of the world, but went to Britain and really made his mark over there. Like, if you had to define the Ingle style just from an outsider looking in, what, is, what are the characteristics of that style and why is that term used so much? I don't even know if it's that much of a thing anymore, is it? Especially with Dom now coming in. But certainly the Brendan style was, it was reflexes, wasn't it? It was hands by your side and, and switch hitting and throwing punches from awkward angles at, you know, at a, using a rhythm an offbeat rhythm where you punch your opponent when they're not expecting it um and punch them like and leaping in from a distance and it's great if it works for you and and it probably did for a lot of for, and it does obviously did a lot of world championships from the gym and a lot of success but even now i think it's been around for so long that it's not it's 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 unpredictable you know it's not become like it's not really a thing anymore where kid galahad or or Kel Brook or those guys where you think they're really awkward fighters. They're just, they fight with that style, but it's something that we've been used to seeing now. It's not not something that's completely separate from, you know, because obviously back back when that, when those guys came out in the in the 90s, say like, say like uh, Johnny Nelson, Prince Nassim, Ryan Rhodes, later on Junior Witter, Everyone fought with their hands up in their box, you know. They, they, were, they were classical fighters at the highest level, but then these guys would come out with their hands down, wide stance, switch hitting, and counter punching from from with their hands down. It, it was real. It was it was a real thing back then. But nowadays, it's not. You know, people have seen it, and it's it's not that unusual. Mm. But like I would say, it, it had a bit of a generational impact. Like you hear all the boxers from the latest generation talking about the impact that Hamad had on them. So even it mightn't seem like seamless comparisons, but Carl Fratch always says he fights with his hands down because he watched uh, Hamad coming through. David Hay fought the same way like with his hands down. And even like going to Adam Booth's gym, obviously David Hay is an exponent of that. But Josh Kelly, I would say, is very similar in his movement to the way Nassim did. Maybe a little bit more, a little bit more conventional, but he's kind of going for that same thing, like punching from odd angles. So I do think mm. there has been an impact, even if Brendan Ingalls obviously passed on and Dominic hasn't quite carried on the exact same legacy. But I think there has been, it has trickled down to the rest of British boxing, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Um, but it, it became, you know, prevalent, became well known. That style, even though it probably was around before then, they remained famous. And that's their style. That's the Ingle, it's always going to be the Ingalls style now. And Emmanuel Stewart obviously had Nassim for a brief period as well. Did he ever talk about him or was it a very fleeting relationship? No, he spoke about him. Uh, just like, you want to do the thing is like, you compare this to Anthony Joshua's New York, whatever. Anthony Joshua got beat when he fought an American fighter and, and Nassim almost got beat. And I've always said, and like we've said it before on the show, that when British fighters travel to America, only the very best will hold up and, get, and win. You know, they like, an average American fight will beat some of the best from England and Ireland because just the standard is so much higher over there. There's so much depth in the gyms. The competition is so fierce that just to be good in America would probably put you at the best in Ireland and England anyway, you know. So, like, that was just another example of that. And Nazim got away with it because he was powerful, you know, because he fought, he was in with the right guy, someone who was just a bit too old, just over past his best. But Emmanuel, speaking about, yeah, Emmanuel, he expressed a lot of, uh, yeah, this, 
disdain and he was disappointed in that scene the way it ended up if you remember correctly how Emmanuel ended up training him was Emmanuel was in England for some I'm not sure if he was commentating or he was doing some there with some other fighter or something but when Nassim fought Paul Ingle, I think it was in the next fight or the fight after Kelly, it was, in, it was certainly within two fights. He came back into England and he fought Paul Ingle and he was having a really hard time in the fight and he was probably losing the fight. And in between rounds, Emmanuel went up to the corner and said something to Naz directly. I think it was something simple. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he went out that round and knocked him out with the very same punch or combination, whatever it was. Um, and then from then on, Emmanuel became his coach. Um, and it, it's probably one of the biggest, I don't know, not tragedies, but it's probably one of the, the saddest things that happened in British boxing was that Nassim and Brandon Ingle split, you know, separated and went separate ways. And, um, and even though he was with Emmanuel, I think leaving Brandon certainly took away from him, you know, because they had that bond, that relationship. And I think, when you've been with somebody that long, no matter how good the new coach is coming in, you never will replace that, you know, that that kind of instinct of knowing your boxer and a coach, knowing how to read him, how to motivate him. I, I thought I think that was probably like certainly was a bad move for, for Naz, even though he was going to probably one of the best trainers of all time. There just wasn't that relationship. And Emmanuel used to say that he never would never wanted to spar. He used to bring his own sparring partners. To the Crown Gym or to the Poconos, and they were all kids, like 14 to 15 year old kids. He never wanted to spar anybody from the gym, and he just wanted to hit the pads and do pads all the time. And you saw it, I can't remember, remember that documentary that was out, it's been a long time ago since I saw it, which was around the Brera fight. And um, it seemed like he was so concerned and came, you know, he was a superstar, but he, he really believed it, and all of that affected him. And uh, he paid the price in the end. But look, he's, is he a great fighter? He had a great impact, didn't he? You know, he was a household name in England and Ireland, and he had a great impact. And people still remember him and reference him when, when, they, when they see a similar knockout or a similar style. So he certainly had an impact. But I'm not sure if he, if he was, like you said, he, may, he never f- fulfilled his potential, but I'm not sure if he was a great fighter. And Phil, in terms of the, the captivation of him, like it was a short era that he had, but as compared to, say, the Ben Eubank era, and then we've seen the Ricky Hatton days, followed by the Anthony Joshua days. From a UK perspective, I'm talking about, like, how did the Hamed thing feel? Did you get the impression that people were tuning in to see him getting beaten, or did he have a fan base? Well, it's funny, you mentioned about people being around to the house, and I think the first pay-per-view fight I got into my house, now, I would have seen pay-per-view fights before, but you know, my group of mates, we almost would have taken it in turns and especially it suited us to go to different houses, especially if there were fights from the US. But I can remember the Tom Boom Boom Johnson fight. Um, that was the first pay-per-view one where the lads all came around to watch it. And the feeling that night was a lot, a lot of lads in the room wanted to see Nassim lose because of that cockiness. There was a, a friend of mine who out of all of us was probably biggest into boxing. And I felt we, we had the same kind of, there was the same kind of feeling around Eubank fights where a lot of people wanted to see Eubank lose, but this same guy wanted to see Eubank win. He was the same guy that wanted to see Nassim win. So he, he really wanted these kind of characters in boxing, these entertainers bringing something different to the, the table. But yeah, it was, it was quite clear watching the fight back that it wasn't like, it, he got the job done, but if you even look at the first round, he's like, he, he starts off quite well. His jab is working pretty well. Then he's exiting out of having Kevin Kelly in the corner, leaves his head there and he gets, he gets put down. And what I can remember from that fight, from the fight as well, was the referee calling him up a few times for touching the, the canvas with his gloves, which I think one of them was very minimal, was, was quite harsh. But yeah, just from, from watching the fights, among my group of friends, there was definitely a feeling of they wanted to see Nassim knocked out. Now, sometimes that can come down to the way he's hyped up. You know, he obviously would have started off on ITV, but then Sky took over, pay-per-view, they hype him up. And people, whether they want to admit it or not, want to see 
some people want to see people get put back in their box. Mm. And just on your point there, like the background is interesting in the sense that, so he cleaned up as an amateur, like the story goes that Brendan Ingle saw him on a schoolyard having a fight at the age of seven and just took him to the gym and he was cleaning up all the way underage, turned pro very early, won the European title when he was 20 and then was world champion at 21, beat Steve Robinson in Cardiff. So that's, I think people forget that he was only 23 when he did this against Kevin Kelly. That was his fifth fight in 1997, which is unheard of for a world champion. Can you imagine a world champion these days taking on, taking on five fights? So like I was listening to Lou DiBella talking about the whole thing and Andy Lou was head of HBO's Boxing Airport at that time. So he was deciding who the, the next guys were going to be. And I think Kevin Kelly, ironically, boxing after dark on HBO, which is trying to showcase maybe the lower weights. Kevin Kelly was the first fighter, um, I think, at 126 pounds or lower in 11 years to fight on HBO. So he was playing, he had his own part of the story as well, in mm. the sense that he was the perfect marketing guy for this, a New Yorker in New York who built his name at the theatre in Madison Square Garden. And people will remember that famous interview on the ring apron. Kevin Kelly basically flew over with Tom Loeffler, who Andy also knows, who's now famous for managing Gennady Golovkin. They booked two plane tickets. They went over to a Nassim Hamid fight and like, basically called them out there. And then they had this very famous exchange on the apron. And the rest was history. This was marketing 101 in a day before social media and everything. There was just posters all around New York. Paulie Malignaggi talks about seeing posters of Nassim Hamid at Times Square. So HBO did a great job. And as Phil mentioned earlier, they are a big loss to the sport. So it was a great promotion. I think that's a, that's a key point to make as well. Yeah, and like... It was like what Anthony Joshua. It was the perfect like roadmap, you know. Even with him, like what they tried to replicate with Anthony Joshua, it just didn't go to plan in terms of the fight at seven. It almost did, but it didn't. But in terms of where you're gonna where, like to come to America and now just say it's Madison Square Garden, you know, it's it's the, it's the perfect place to do it. And uh, yeah, people still talked about. It. Like look at us, we're talking about the fight now. What was it, ninety-seven? So. Yeah. How long ago was that? Too long. <laughs> but and like, even like um, on the point, so Kevin Kelly, as I said, one of the lighter fighters on HBO in, in an awful long time. But then you look at the decade which followed, like Hamed, we talk about Deontay Wilder, where his power comes from. Like with Hamed, you can see with those big legs that that's where the power came from with him. But he basically put the lighter divisions on the map or back on the map because in the decade which followed, it was Mayweather Pacquiao, granted a mm. little bit heavier, but... Small no, guy. but like he oh, opened the door because yeah. he beat Brera, beat him, and then Brera has those fights with you know Morales and whoever, and then eventually with Pacquiao. But he definitely opened the door for lighter weights to be you know headline TV TV events. Yeah, and I think one is I think Phil mentioned the ring walk initially, and something I wasn't aware of until I was reading about this was that that kind of that went awry. It wasn't supposed to be as long as it was the silhouette at the start. So if people want to watch this fight back. He's basically standing behind a silhouette with a shadow. And that thing is supposed to set on fire and drop down and he's supposed to walk out. But it takes so long for that to happen that he just says, uh, to hell with this. And he just walks out through. So as long as he was, it was definitely part of the game plan to make Kelly wait in the ring a little while, but uh, not quite as long. And Frank Warren cites it after the fight as an issue. Maybe Hamed came in a little bit cold and whatnot. But did you ever have any of those, suffer any of those psychological ploys from an opponent, Andy? Were you ever left... Waiting in the ring overly long? Mm, no, I was always, like, for the most of the fights, I was the A side, so I'd always be walking last. But I always made a point not to do it um, to my opponents because I always, I always found it really disrespectful. And uh, I always made a point that, no, let's just get in there and get this done. There's no, you know, there's no point. But question for you guys, off the top of your head, best ring walk, what are you thinking of all time? I did enjoy Tyson's one a few weeks ago, and they have to say, although you you subsequently said you didn't have much to do with that. If that was me, I would have no. been taking all the credit for that. <laughs> no, uh, I actually didn't didn't know how I was gonna play out. He just came up with it one day over over dinner or lunch or something. He was explaining it and how he was gonna do it, and I couldn't. Like I thought, oh, it's not gonna be great, <laughs> but I was wrong. I was wrong. Came out really really well, and. Uh, it was pure performance, wasn't it? Pure theatre, like you know. It's I liked good. I liked Bernard Dunn's against Cordoba, and I liked I liked Carl Frotch's against uh, Lucian Butefil, which we always reference. No easy it's way. Because, 
yeah, it's because of the, the music as well. I can remember Pacquiao came in with Jimmy Jemison singing Survivor. <laughs> uh, or Eye of the Tiger, rather. Um, I mean, Pacquiao was singing Seven to the Ring one time, didn't he? Yeah. He, was that Tim Bradley when he sang before the fight, I think? I can't remember. Well, uh, Nassim's one against McCullough. That was Halloween. Halloween. Halloween, yeah. Yeah, that, that, yeah that, that wasn't bad, no. That, that was kind of almost like had a, a hint of Michael Jackson thriller or something to it. Mm. But, yeah, Ring Walks. Klitschko's pretty good. Yeah. Chili Peppers gets a go. On. Yeah, well, it's do you know what? When you hear that song, it's the first thing I think of is Klitschko. So, oh, yeah, uh, that's pretty like I mean, I, I can't think of any. I'm, I'm sure that there's plenty out there that people are probably screaming at the the radio now, just thinking, How could you forget this one? So, mm. feel free to, to put Tyson's them in. Tyson's done some good ones now, though. Yeah, Living in America was pretty good. <laughs> the Mexican you... run. Did you have Parade any? Was pretty good. Were there any of your own that you enjoyed, Andy? Nah, I, I just I never even, I just I never I never even picked it. Up. Very rarely that I picked a song. I just like put on whatever you want and I just walk out and fight, you know. But a couple of times I picked a song. It's always in hindsight you think I should have played that song, you know. But yeah. Were we ever walking in though? Were we ever walking in thinking, Jesus, who picked that song? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's gonna make Couple me look times. bad. Times. <laughs> I remember Aaron Pryor fought in Detroit, Aaron Pryor Jr., and uh, they put on Who Let the Dogs Out. <laughs> he was so embarrassed when he was walking to the ring. <laughs> Baja man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one of your favorites, Phil. Oh, yeah, have to have the record somewhere. Just to put some shape on this to, to round things up. So, as we said, only four rounds, but it, it kind of flew by. There was no real pattern apart from round three, which kind of developed a little bit of, of a rhythm. But round one, it was as if things were too easy for Nassim Ahmed. He was kind of boxing a little bit conventionally and then leaning back gets caught. And that kind of sets the, that likes the touch paper for the rest of the fight. It just, it, it gets crazy after that, really. Like in terms of two southpaws, Andy, with, like that's obviously an issue as well. And obviously two punchers in there together. Did you ever have that dynamic where you're up against a southpaw, but also someone you're like, I kind of have to keep an eye out for this guy who uh, punches mm. quite hard? John Jackson was a little bit like that and switched, you know, he switched stances and obviously would punch him very hard. Um, and obviously Quillen and Saunders even. You know, you know you're, you know you're, you're dangerous yourself, but you're vulnerable. So it's, it is risky. Sometimes you just let it all hang out as Kevin Kelly did and he paid the price. Like sometimes... It's usually, yeah, it's usually the, the younger man has a slightly better reflexes in those, you know, those split seconds that make, and it makes a difference between who, who lands and who goes down. Yeah. Um, but another note about the fight, Benji Estevez was a referee. Great ref. Same ref as Jackson and same ref as Daniels. Oh, yeah. New York ref, yeah. yeah. So uh, he's yeah. always good look for me. Him and Steve Smogo. Oh, Steve Smogo. I had those guys. Great tash. <laughs> Smogo didn't take yeah. any nonsense. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so Kelly gets the first knockdown in, in round one, gets another knockdown in round two. It looks like the tide's very much turning there. Hamed gets a, what looked like a legitimate knockdown, but it was ruled a slip by, by Benji. And then... Did uh, it hit the back of the head, do you think? Is that why? Maybe, but I think he just thought that uh, Kelly lost his footing. But I think the commentary team on Sky and HBO both thought it should have been a knockdown. So it didn't turn out to be a big, big factor in the fight as things turned out. Then he does catch him uh, with a nice shot. And there's a great line from Larry Merchant as if cinematic delivery. He says, Hamed is supposed to have power of his own. We haven't seen evidence of that as yet. And then within a second, he, <laughs> he lands that short right hand and puts Kelly down. And Kelly looks up at Hamed with uh, the smile on his face. Would you describe that as a flash knockdown, Andy? And I always want to, because I always use this term flash knockdown. But what does it actually feel like as compared to a legitimate knockdown? Well, a flash knockdown is you're, you're down, but you're up and you're totally fine. You feel fine. It's like, how did that happen? But the heavy knockdown is like, you know, you're, you're buzzing, your feet, you're not recovered, you don't have control of yourself. And you're trying to, you're trying to stay calm. Um, but I wouldn't know, I think that was a good flush punch, wasn't it? It was a really good flush because, and what he did, he, he stepped back onto his left leg. And so he got, like, you mentioned that seems legs. His power was in his legs, and he, can't, he punched from his feet up, 
Um, he would often, like, he knocked out several guys leaping in with uppercuts, but this one, he just stepped back onto his back foot and launched it from, from the toe all the way through the hip and just put it on the chin. And I think the connection looked, why, why it might have been a flash time, it was the connection was just so little, but it, it came, from, came from the foot, so um, that's where the power was from. Hmm. Like, um, really, Kelly, Kelly, if Kelly was more disciplined... And ta- a little bit tactically more aware. He would have won the fight. Could have won the fight. Would have, should have won the fight, you know? Because mm. he had the power to hurt Naz. He had the skill and the hand speed. But he just doesn't have the discipline. Or probably the game plan. Or, you know, yeah, I would say discipline was, was definitely more a problem. Because after, after, after that early success, if he just stayed behind his jab and not traded with Naz, Naz would have had to get desperate. And would have to, you know, come into him, and he would have got caught him again. But just stay behind that jab, and you know, attack Naz in straight lines after Naz punched, because that that's what Barrera did. You know, Naz had all these slow, had, would throw all these wild punches. Barrera kept his hands up in the solid, and then he, he attacked him in straight lines because Naz always pulled back high. Yeah, as, as Phil Burgess said, uh, Kelly's coach said, if if he leaps, he sleeps about Hamed and. Uh, the whole thing, as you said, was to keep Kelly disciplined, take Hamed into the later rounds and maybe stop him there. But Kelly came in with 32 knockouts and probably thought if he hurt him once, yeah. he'd be able to put him away. And sometimes you can um, get drunk, drunk on your own power, I presume. And you can't change your personality. Like, you know, your personality and how you fight, the style in which you fight and your personality, they're, they're like, you know, they're one and the same. You can't change it. Yeah. And you can't change it for one, for one performance. I don't know. I, I don't know. I think you have to have some sort of I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know. It's just that New York, you know, fly, you know, that kind of New York attitude. I don't know. You see him straight away with his, with his girlfriend or his wife in the ring after. And, you know, it's just that arrogant, not the arrogant, the cockiness. Kevin Kelly is, is, is actually a gentleman. Mm. And I've met him, like, plenty of times and spoke to him and, um, like, talked about fights and things like that together, both being southpaws. But, yeah, I actually... I. I don't want to be speaking ill of him. I hope I'm not, but I think he probably, if he was a little bit more disciplined, he would have won that fight. He said it after the fight when Larry Merchant interviewed him. He said, I'm my worst enemy. I deviated. If I just stuck to the plan, I could have won this fight. But it's interesting when he does that. You mentioned there, his wife is by his side when he's doing that interview. And she she looks more upset than, than Kevin <laughs> Kelly. She's just more disgusted with him, thinking he didn't stick to the game plan. He, he could have beaten this guy because Nassim looked so untidy at times in that fight. When, mm. when he was trying to duck out of the way, he was all like, he, you know, his hands obviously were touching the canvas, but he was falling over, especially in the, was it the, the second round when he went down? He actually went down and the ref didn't count it. He's kind of stumbled across and then he got put down again. So, yeah, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't very impressive. It was almost like this is the first time you've seen the same really tested, and he might have got the win. But yeah, it was maybe a sign of what was to come. And then obviously, yeah, I thought um, Kevin Kelly's corner did a nice job. I thought Brendan England was very good in the corner too. You know, from the little bit you can see from the footage, both corners were, I thought, given the right uh, instruction to the fighters, both were very calm and and. Kevin's corner. As soon as once the fight was over and there was all the chaos and people jumping in, all all his priority was was to get his corner back, get his fight back to the corner and get him some water and give him some space, you know, because he knew that his fight had just been knocked down pretty heavily, and um, I was that that impressed me. Mm. And one more good commentary line. Well, there's actually loads in this fight. I'm sure. I'm sure you have your own favorites. Lampley says. Hamed breaks so many rules of textbook boxing. It's as if not only has he not read the book, he hasn't looked at the table of contents. So that kind of gives people an idea of what the American perspective of, of Nassim was. Round three, as I said, was kind of the most normal round of the whole thing where you could actually see a little bit of tactics going on. But round four ultimately closed the thing. Uh, Brendan Ingle in the corner before round four, Andy says he's had his fun now about Kelly. And then Hamed goes out and finishes the job. And I thought Kelly was gone after the first knockdown in that round. And he gets a little reprieve when he manages to knock Hamed down or his glove touches the canvas, Benji rules it a knockdown. But you can see throughout that count that Hamed is just looking at Kelly. He knows he has him there. 
and he just goes in and finishes his job. He jumps in with a brilliant shot and that's a highlight reel knockout which has been played. It's done the rounds on Sky for the last uh, 23 years for a reason. Yeah, and I do think um, Benji Severs was slightly biased towards, in favour of Kelly. <laughs> I think he was giving him every chance he could, and especially, you know, he, he ruled out one knockdown and he and he there was one where Naz was was knocked out where he kind of knocked Naz, but it could have been you know could have been easily a slip where he, you mentioned touching the floor. But like it was probably like even though if it was me as a fight, I wouldn't be happy with my performance or the way I won the fight because of the ups and downs and looking vulnerable. But in terms of announcing yourself to the USA, in terms of an excitement and HBO and convincing them that the lighter weights there are you know their value yeah it was probably the perfect fight yeah and phil larry merchant described it as the hagler herons of featherweight boxing we've never seen a fight like this in the featherweight division so that's high praise yeah and larry was coming out with some absolute dingers all night even before <laughs> before the fight started he um or well after the fight is over then obviously george foreman declares the prince is for real but larry merchant said before the fight just is about to start we're going to find out now if he's a prince or a frog so the and i was also when i was watching the fight i was thinking could you imagine how big nasim could have been if there was social media around then like mm. he was big but he was made for the social media era where he would just be absolutely huge michael buffer was emceeing michael buffer when he intros Princess scene, he gives Ministry of Sound a shout out. I don't know if you picked up on that. And he basically said, You're, the, the music that Naz walked into was brought to you by Ministry of Sound. And he gives their new their new album a, a plug. So uh, Adidas obviously were, were heavily on board on that as well, which we mentioned the shots that would have been in New York, the, all the pictures they would have had Adidas sponsorship. So he, he was huge, but I, I can't imagine how big he would have been with social media on board and uh yeah larry merchant has said he um came out with some some belters throughout the throughout the night but yeah it, four minutes or four rounds of just of, of madness really yeah and he larry merchant if people stay right to the end of this video i'll put the link in the description but he references chumbawamba as well at the end of that of that telecast as well phil so people have to tune in to see what the context is there we talked to Owen a few weeks ago, Phil, about the Lamata Robinson fight, and obviously that's a wholly different era. But was there anything that stood out to you about this fight from 23 years ago as opposed to a similar fight uh, now? Uh, no, and I, I think it's something we touched on because the way boxing is always categorized with, with weight, that, you know, styles can change, but physiques can't really differ that much because there's only so much you can you're obviously limited to what you can weigh so you can't you know he, like he was a five foot three featherweight we mentioned he got a lot of his power from his legs kevin kelly was five seven he had a six inch reach advantage but watching it you wouldn't have really thought it at the time even though kelly's corner said before the, the, the fight if our fighter jabs and his reach is too big you can't see how nasim is going to get inside him but no, it, it it was. I'm trying to think of a fight that it was similar to in the modern era when it seems. I mean, 23 years ago seems like a long time ago, but um, as I said it, it was quite scrappy. I said the only really structured round was the third round, as you mentioned there. But mm. um, no, it had it had what you want from a big fight. It had obviously Nassim came over to New York saying, "This is what I'm going to do." He said he was going to finish it in the third round. Did it in the fourth round. Uh, you know, booed in when because he took so long to come in. We we haven't even mentioned. I one thing I did love about Nassim was his flip over the rope, where I just thought it's so ballsy because if it goes wrong, he's going to look like an absolute idiot. <laughs> and he's doing it in front of thousands of people. Now, you know, if it if it went wrong, I'm sure he'd laugh it off. But it, did it ever go wrong? I, mean, I think probably footage of maybe it going wrong very early in his career or something like that. But um, it's, a, it's a fight that, as I said, if, a, if we watched it in 2020 or 2021, it wouldn't look out of place. Mm. And Andy, I presume that's the beauty of now what your training hat on. There's probably stuff you can take from fights all, the, all down through the years. 
in a way probably football coaches can't because the game has moved on. In its essence, boxing has remained pretty much the same. Yeah, slight changes and changes in um, like styles of you know they kind of got like say like you had when Muhammad Ali was was world champion. What grew out of that was the fighters from the eighties who all tried to fight like him, like Leonard and Hagler and Her- right, fighters who had that bouncing rhythm and they would shoot the jab, shoot the jab, Larry Holmes, you know. And then along came Mike Tyson, and then everyone wanted to fight in the crowd to be, you know, rolling that custom artist style coming up with hooks. And now from this day and age, and still probably is still the Mayweather, Mayweather where everyone wants to fight behind their shoulder cast shots and you see people doing the pads and you don't know why they're doing the pads like that but that's the seen Mayweather do so they're doing it um and I wonder who will be the next you know but there I think but generally uh your point is right fighters have to like fighters have got have gotten bigger I think throughout people have athletes get bigger and stronger and across all sports but in boxing as well you look at the heavyweights now compared to Muhammad Ali, who was 6'3. You know, Tyson Fury is 6'8, six, 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 6'9. So even though Muhammad Ali was the greatest, greatest heavyweight of all time, hard to see him beating Tyson just because of the size, the size and ability of Tyson. And yeah, but like, like Jay Clamada and Ray Robinson, those guys were like 5'10, you know, 5'6. Five, five, most. Middleweights nowadays are all in all, all over six foot, you know, six foot plus. So, um, but like you said, there's still two men with two hands, and you can go all the way back to John L. Sullivan, and you'll find the same thing and things that they did that can be used today. And just to put a to put a cap on this, finally, uh, with Hamed and Kelly, uh, the highest rating ever for a debut on HBO Boxing, and that record will probably never be broken because HBO Boxing. It's a thing of the past, unfortunately. Uh, four years later, um, Hamed was beaten by Barrera at age 27, and then at age 28, he was done. So the Kelly fight probably should have been a bit of a wake-up call, and he needed to tidy up a few things, but he never really addressed things. In fact, like he never really had an impressive performance after that. Wayne McCullough took him the distance. He was taking the distance as well by Soto, I think. So there was acrimony in the Ingle camp. Um, the Manny Stewart uh, thing didn't quite work out either. So he was voted a Hall of Famer last year and it was probably on the strength of a very brief period at the top. But like his impact, the fact that we're still talking about him uh, two and a half decades on probably stands to reason that he is in the Hall of Fame, I'd say. Yeah, he crossed over, didn't he? He was like, he was a household name and it's because of those things that were mentioned as much as the boxing, the personality, the... You know the the character, the outlandishness, the ring entrances, um, and his commercial appeal. And so, um, yeah, I think he. On, on the whole, of things probably was a great fighter in terms of the impact he made. Um, but it's still argument, so like it's still an argument to be had there. Hmm. And Phil, from your perspective. This fight in particular, plus his career generally, is it worth people revisiting that aren't familiar having a look back at his career? Yeah, I think this fight in particular, but you know, it probably doesn't show him in, a, in his best light because he obviously gets put down a few times. But he was stepping up in quality. This, this, he said after the fight, he said in the ring, you could actually hear him say to Kevin Kelly, "You're the best I've ever fought," and and he said about kindly said about himself as well. <laughs> I'm the best you've ever fought. But what was interesting, like the, the famous comments from Brendan Engel after they split, he said four more fights and he's finished. Now he had a few more than that, but the writing was on the wall. Um, he, you know, he did have, I think at the time it, it fitted in nicely for, for people of my age where, you know, boxing was becoming more prevalent on TV. We obviously had, we got to see boxing growing up, but Sky obviously took over and there was more big fight nights that we were getting to see. Obviously, it was behind a paywall, but at the time, the pay-per-view wasn't as steep as it is now. It wasn't as often as it is. So he he had a huge impact and I think definitely worth checking out this fight. Um, Even check out the, you could take it in cycles that 
you could watch some of his early stuff where he's knocking out lads. Just some of the angles that he throws punches in. Now he mightn't have been up against the greatest, the greatest opponents, but then maybe watch the Kevin Kelly fight, watch the McCullough fight, and watch the Barrera fight, and then you know you get a fair fair idea of the way things went. That you know obviously he was knocking out lads handy enough. Then as the quality went up, he was finding it tougher and. Ultimately, it pretty much ended when he got outclassed by Barrera. He won fight after it, and then that was him done. Great stuff, lads. Well, that's our thoughts on the whole thing. We put the link in the description. We let people make their own minds up. Andy or Phil will be picking the next one. I think Phil had mentioned a bit of Joe Calzaghe against Jeff Lacey might be might be on the cards. Is that right? Phil? That's a yeah. That's a it's one that I've watched a few times. That was a, Go a free obscure, Phil. Go obscure. Go, Go obscure. obscure. Like someone that we have to watch maybe with Russian commentary, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see. I'll see if we can go obscure then. What's your, on YouTube. Maybe what's a your, fight we've never seen. What's your fight, Andy, of, of choice? What, what fight would you have watched more than any other, would you say? Oh, it would have been classic, like one of the classics fights. Maybe Hag- maybe Hearns and Leonard or Leonard the Duran won or maybe Hearns and, Hearns and Duran, but or Hans and Shula, even though that was only a one-round fight. Um, off the top of my head, I think one we could do is um, Juan Manuel Lopez against Robert Mutanga. It was a great fight, featherweight fight. Again, southpaw. And like I was at the fight, I can remember it being an unbelievable fight. And from what I can remember, there was a couple, few, good few knockdowns in it. And I won't tell you the winner for the spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> I think Showtime, Showtime last weekend were showing Israel Vasquez against Juan Manuel Marquez one after the, oh, yeah. the, the entire trilogy. So that's, that's probably another one we can look at. There's plenty. We'll, it looks like we're going to have loads of time on our hands over the next few months anyway. So we'll get through a few of them. Uh, thanks again, lads. Thanks for thanks Cheers, for lads. Thank you. Madman drummers, bombers, and Indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat. In the dumps where the mumps is the adolescent pumps is way into his head With a boulder on my shoulder feeling kind of older I trip the merry-go-round Where this very unpleasing sneezing and wheezing Calliope crashed to the ground some old hot half shot was heading for the hot spot Snapping his fingers, clapping his hands Some flesh pot mascot was tied into a lover's knot With a whatnot in her hand How young Scott with a slingshot finally found a tender spot And throws his lover in the sand Some bloodshot forget-me-not whispers daddy's with an earshot Save the buckshot Turn up the band And she was blinded by light Cut loose like a deuce Another runner in the night Blinded by the light She got down but she never got tight She's gonna make it all right Some brimstone baritone and I cyclone rolling stone Preacher from the east He says dethrone the dictaphone Hit it in its funny bone Yeah, that's where they expected least Some new moon chaperone was standing in the corner all alone Watching the young girls dance some fresh soul moonstone was messing with his frozen zone To remind him of the feeling of romance And he was blinded by the light Cut loose like a deuce, another runner in the night Blinded by the light He got down but he never got tight He's gonna make it alright Some silicone sister with her manager's mister Told me I got what it takes She said I'll turn you on Sunday to something strong If you play that song with the funky break And go-kart Mozart was checking out the weather chart 
Let's see if it was safe to go outside And little early pearly came by in her curly whirly Ask me if I need a ride Oh, some hazard from Harvard was skunked on beer Playing backyard bombardier Scotland Yard was trying hard They sent some dude with a con card He said, do what you like, but don't do it here well, I jumped up, turned around, spit in the air, fell on the ground I asked him which was the way back home He said, take a ride at the light, keep going straight all night And then, boys, you're on your own There's more In Zanzibar, a shooting star was riding in a sidecar Humming a lunar tune and the avatar said, blow the bar, but first remove the cookie jar. We're going to teach those boys to laugh too soon. Some kidnapped handicap was complaining that he caught the clap from some mouse trap he bought last night. Well, I unsnapped the skull cap between his ears. I saw a gap. Figured it'd be all right. Well, he was blinded by light. Like a deuce, another runner in the night Blinded by the light Mama always told me not to look into the sights of the sun Oh, but mama, that's where the fun is I was blinded This is the best part, I was blinded I was blinded I was blind